Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hi, everyone. It's Jay Kevin McHugh here. I'm the host of Sheer Clarity. It's a podcast where we talk with top business leaders about how to become leaders by attraction. Sheer Clarity means increasing self-awareness, admitting vulnerabilities, and understanding your blind spots. Every leader who wants to be attractive has to be clear about who they are and what they stand for and what drives them. Now, from that place of clarity, they can begin to turn all their energies to caring about and helping others. It's not about them anymore. It's others focused. And that's a key to attracting people who will follow you anywhere. This episode is being brought to you by JKM Management Development, which I developed in 1990. We provide executive life and leadership coaching and the development of leadership teams that operate with extreme trust and honesty based on the sheer clarity principles. As a former member of the Young Presidents Organization, I'm passionate about helping leaders who get it. And over the last 30 years, I've had 3,500 up-close and personal engagements with CEOs. And I've helped 100 or more executive teams develop, integrate trust, honesty, and a vulnerability into the organization. We work with founding entrepreneurs, Fortune 500 executives, and lots of closely held family businesses of every size and shape. So stop by SheerClarity.com so you can hear this podcast and others like it. And for now, we will get to this interview. This is a very special interview because it's the first one. The podcast was launched in June. And since then, we've put up about 34, 35 episodes. And we made a decision strategically to put these uh, sheer clarity concepts to the test and talk to real people, people who are been in business, who are leaders, leading a wide variety of uh, operations and organizations. And today I am blessed and grateful to have a good old friend named Dave Maney. Dave is a national economic and financial writer and a commentator. He's also an executive chair and the co-founder of Deke Digital. The mission of Deke that I uh, snuck out of LinkedIn for him says, working to summon forth the expert media universe. He's going to tell you what that means. He writes a number of uh, publications and columns for uh, national publications. He writes on technology and influence in our lives. He's frequently seen and a commentator on Fox Business, especially that Cavuto show. And he's also been on CNBC, Fox News, and CNN. So with that, I would like to say, Dave, thank you for helping me break into this new arrangement of interviews. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. I'm delighted to be here and, and, and delighted to be your first. Well, let's start with this. Just help the audience get in touch with Deke Digital because I, I did spend time on the site and um, I think I get it after a couple of passes but no one should explain it better than the guy who actually started it. So see if you can get us in tune with it. So Deke uh, is in the business of expert media and, uh, and, and developing an expert media engine. So what we do is turn experts, and in our, in our world, experts are uh, typically chief executive officers, entrepreneurs, 
founders, chief medical officers, chief technology officers, law firm partners, accounting firm partners. I mean, people who have deep seated expertise and um, who like sharing that expertise with the world. Um, and we uh, help turn them into prolific national media contributors. Um, as you know, the, the news business has gone through an, an economic apocalypse and it, it, it ain't over yet. Like it's, mm. in effect, the, the, the economic model of the news business is dying. Newsrooms typically have been slashed to levels of about a third of their staffing of 15 years ago. So you have two thirds of the people gone, uh, but with a need to still cover these complex stories. And w w the, the reality is that, that our, our society's experts have deep wells of, of uh, knowledge and uh, perspective and insight that they can share on those complex topics, but they don't know where to share it, how to share it, how to get it out, how to structure it, how to make sure that if the editor says I need 700 words by 3 p.m. that it gets there. So we've we've helped create more than uh, well over a thousand pieces of of national media content for publications that range from the New York Times uh, all the way down to um, you know dermatology practice management today, depending right. on on where that expert needs and wants to share that expertise. So that's what we do. So give me a, a quick snapshot of your trajectory. And, you know, starting from, I'll ask you in a little bit about life growing up because I want the audience to know you personally, but just give me the last 15 years or so or 20 years, like, how did you end up here? Like, what, what did that path look like? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Deke has been the, the, the culmination of a, uh, of a strange set of, of largely entrepreneurial experiences. Um, I went, I was lucky enough to... Um, uh, get accepted to go to business school at Stanford. And so I, I went there and then, uh, uh, and, and had very much, I'd worked in the news business before that in my hometown of Binghamton, New York at the uh, Binghamton Evening Press and Sun Bulletin and uh, at the uh, NBC TV affiliate in my hometown. And I knew that I wanted to go into the media business. And so I went to work for the San Francisco Chronicle um, uh, in the newspaper division. And uh, Chronicle was also in the cable television business, and I ended up migrating because of sort of business necessity over there. And so um, uh, I, I became a, a, I gravitated toward the technology side of the cable business at the time mm -hmm. that the um, first we were trying to get into the phone business, and then the the um, the, the internet wave kind of came up and smacked us in the butt. And uh, I started my first company in um, 1994. Uh, which was designed to help cable operators uh, move to advanced telecommunication services, and okay. so that was that was my first company, uh, lucky lucky place in time, um, and uh, built it for about five or six years with a group of really interesting investors, and sold it at a very very lucky moment in time. And, um, uh, <laughs> I, and lo I love when you talk about timing because it is important, isn't it? Oh God. I mean, it is so critical and, and it was not, and I'd love to tell you that I had an exquisite sense of timing, but the reality is that I had an exquisitely talented board of directors mm -hmm. uh, that, that helped me figure that out. Um, but after selling it, we tried to do the most capital intensive telecom startup in the history of 
the universe as we know it. <laughs> and, uh, and we, we actually almost, we, we, we had raised commitments for, uh, I think about $650 million, uh, after setting a goal of a billion dollars and, and like literally, and, and I was working with some real heavyweights who, uh, on a, on a, on a very interesting and, uh, and, and actually directionally correct strategy, except for the fact that it took roughly $10 billion to sort of pull it off. Oh my God. And, and fortunately, um, you know, all we lost was the development capital. We never, we, we, we never took in the, the heavy duty construction funds. Wow. Um, and that, uh, experience ended up giving me this kind of wild, um, uh, network in the private equity world, which we used to to then create a, a, a middle market investment bank called Headwaters in uh, Denver, Colorado, where, where I spent 22 years. And Headwaters, um, uh, my, my co-founder and I built up uh, what is what became the largest independent uh, investment bank in the Midwest or in the uh, Rocky Mountain West. Hmm. And um, they merged a few years ago. I, I ended up selling my interest back in it because uh, I was a uh, I, I was a kind of pretending to be a banker. Uh, hmm. What I really was was a, a, a rainmaker, a networker, and a, a marketer. Right. Um, and my co-founder was an absolutely brilliant uh, banker. Um, and today he's still, uh, you know, making that happen. But I left in uh, 2010 uh, because I had, when the financial crisis hit in 2008, I had been... Um, pulled back into the media world to uh, talk about um, the, the financial crisis and its effects on Main Street. And I had actually begun to, to generate a bit of a reputation for that and was doing right. national television regularly. And out of all of that media activity, uh, Deke was born about three years later in 2013. And uh, it has been uh, it has come to feel like my life's uh, work and it is, uh, has really begun to take off after w what felt like a, you know, a seven year kind of laboratory experiment. So, so it's, it's, I always love when, when people make such a passionate reference to something, when I hear the phrase, my life's work. Like you, you've been on your way to this place and to this point in time. And it's, you use the words like culmination, right? So if you pull it together into a sentence or two, what is it now, this culmination? Does that mission that I s snatched off of the LinkedIn page really say it? Working yeah, well, I mean, that's, a, that, that, that's me and, you know, that's me as, as a, I'm a words guy, a writer. And so I yeah. always like, you know, I, I, I love, I love words and that's me kind of being clever with it. I think the reality is there's a, there's a more cogent mission statement we have, which is uh, 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 that we're working uh, to help uh, transmit uh, uh, knowledge from uh, the people who have it to the people who need it. Perfect. And I would tell you that we are deep in the bowels of what news is. Uh, we, all, we, all, we all made, and I find this pattern over and over in, in, live, in our lives, in our world, particularly in this time of sort of radical 
technological and, and social change, you, you continually see things where, you know, our frame of reference is one thing and we assume that is the only way this thing exists. We assume that news was something that came from newspapers and from mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite. And it was something that somebody served up to us uh, and that somebody was an institution, a big and powerful institution, and that, and that there were people more qualified than us to decide what news was. News, it turns out, is something, is, is a dynamism that, that, that can either uh, affect our lives positively, that can give us something more or better, whether that is, uh, you know, great weather tomorrow, that's news, whether that is, gee, there's a new alternative for how, we're, a new model for how we're going to send our kids to college, mm-hmm. and it turns out it's much better, or whether that is, there's new technology for my kitchen. I mean, it's all of that stuff that could be better. And it's also all the stuff that can go wrong and, and make our lives less good. It's the threat of crime. It's a hurricane coming. It's somebody that's, that's potentially going to raise our taxes or take away a benefit. And so if you boil it down, it's almost in a weird way kind of fear and greed, right? That's negatively stated. But right. it's any dynamism in our world that can change the status quo is something that we want to know more about mm-hmm. and where that can come from and how it gets filtered and who knows uh, about how to kind of give it to us and, and, and how technologically or platform-wise, all of that goes into it. And, and, it is, and, and all of it is up for grabs right now. And so being at the center of rethinking how that works, uh, I feel like I spent, you know, my, my life was around uh, uh, first the news in the old model, then kind of technology and, it's, and, and how things get transmitted from, from one to another. And then, you know, this deeply kind of financial and economic world. And, and those three things kind of undergird what, what Deke Digital is. That was amazingly stated and I, I i hope the listeners are are, are tuning in to something that i want to just call energy i don't know if you heard it but i'm pretty sure you did that as dave got rolling the energy just went through the roof and that frequently gets called passion and you could feel it and you can hear it as you're listening so now that you've got this passion that has culminated into a mission, which is to get out there, find at its depth the incredible expertise that's distributed throughout this universe into different places, you want to grab it and get people who have it into a place where it can be delivered. And it sounds like delivery is all over the place and the delivery model continues to evolve and change. And that's where you find yourself right now is, and, and do people yeah, still look, need I, to be educated about? Say that again? Do people still like, are people still overwhelmed? Just as you described it, you know, it sounded like it's so much bigger than we've ever thought it could be. Oh God, so, yeah. 
the uh, yeah, yeah. information, right? Yeah. Look, there's a, you know, there's a, one of my favorite phrases on the planet, Kevin, is, um, I, yeah, I, I, it, it came from a, a fellow named Clay Shirky, who is, is, in my opinion, the greatest kind of, you know, uh, uh, internet theorist, the guy who's thought the most and, and the best about kind of how, what changes the internet is, is wreaking on society. And, um, and, and he wrote this phrase that in a revolution, the old order collapses long before the new order emerges. Hmm. And, and, and that is, you know, overwhelmingly true in the, in the, in the news business or the news reality, whatever you want to call it. Like, uh, the, you know, here's, here's the truth. Uh, the economic model of the news business was undergirded by physical distribution, a newspaper on your doorstep or a radio signal or a TV signal in, in, in your receiving set. And once that distribution kind of uh, uh, oligopoly went away, so did the economics of the news business. Right. And so it has, it has, it, it, and, and it's, it's not coming back like that. Yep. That monopoly is not coming back. And so the old ways busted. Mm -hmm. And so, and so they're, they're in effect, you know, the, the question is, is there an economic incentive for people who understand uh, and can, can give us, information and commentary on that dynamism in our world is there an economic model is there a reason why is there is there an engine that can that can cause people to want to participate in that activity and and what i would tell you is overwhelmingly what we've proven is that there is that that, right. that there's a reason why experts want and need to share what they know and it and it and it boils down to you know it, it's um there's a great uh, friend of mine uh, who has an interest, who's a great philanthropist, who has an interesting phrase, which is selfish is sustainable, which means, you know, if you want somebody to give money, like you don't, it's not that they're being selfish about money. They've got money. They right. want something. They want some kind of satisfaction or they want to, even if it's just that they want to feel good internally. It's a return one way or the other. One way or the other. And it turns out that there is real uh, dividend for experts who want to share what they know. And if they're a wealth manager and they want people to understand that they really, really understand the problems of, of, of wealth management and investment right. security, you need to talk about it. And so it's, and, and that's just one example, but, but we, you know, we have everybody from university presidents to physicians, to uh, scientists, uh, to all kinds of financial folks and attorneys and, and public policy folks in our stable of uh, experts. And, you know, they've all got reasons to be there. And, and that makes the news uh, ecosystem sustainable in a way that people in society, our society were starting to worry wasn't possible. Wow. Fascinating. So I love this. And now I want to shift to the practical side of this. You're putting an organization together, or you already have one together. I imagine it's growing and it's got a clarity and a mission and you're on a cutting edge, you're a thought leader kind of guy. What are the things that you are worrying about, thinking about, or having to deal with when it comes to the actual engagement with people who are going to be 
in a system, we'll call it your company, if you will, the organization, um, it requires leadership. And I'd be curious how you see yourself in that. And if you've synthesized what you now know about where your passion is, and it does that include leading the organization, which is going to economically put together a model to deliver on the promise that you just so incredibly well articulated? Well, it's very interesting. You know, lead, leader, le leadership comes in a lot of different forms. And I think um, one thing that I think uh, founders often struggle with is um, understanding what form they can bring. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I have no doubt. Uh, look, there are vastly better entrepreneurs than me that, uh, you know, that, that are able, I, I can think of, you know, friends of mine, um, that have well, one particular friend, I always call him the greatest entrepreneur I've known is somebody who took a company, started out life as a, as a policeman. And he saw, uh, uh, you know, and he was, uh, and he was interested in computers and basically launched a company literally over his garage, uh, and, and took the, took the little tiny company from that to a venture capital backed technology company to, you know, a giant software company all around the subject of public safety, ended up taking the company public, ended up eventually taking it private again with a private equity firm and then overseeing its sale to another public company. And he stayed for 34 years, I think he was the CEO of that company, an unbelievable huh. entrepreneur through all phases. He's like, he's literally like one in a million. Right. And, and, and there are people, uh, it, it's, it's very hard for, for entrepreneurs and founders to understand or sort of see those inflection points. Mine is that I am a, uh, a great synthesizer of, of, of facts and of reality uh, and can, can use it to assemble a different reality and am pretty good at helping other people see that reality. That makes me a good recruiter and a good fundraiser uh, and a good salesman and a good evangelist. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not make me a good manager as all the people who, uh, who work for me could tell you. And so having the ability to, uh, to know that and, and, and get other people to work with you who are, um, now, is, let, let, is that, critical. So that's the part that I want to hear more about. How did you become aware over what period of time, what kind of things were happening that got you the understanding you have now. You sound very solid and clear about yourself and what you're good at, not good at, and how to position your role as the entrepreneur and the role the entrepreneur is going to play. You compared yourself to one of the guys you saw of the greatest of all time who spent 34 years through an entire life cycle from garage to growth to public to private, and he stayed in the system with the title CEO, and you're distinguishing yourself from, I'm not that guy. So you had to learn. 
the guy you are. And I'm curious how you would describe the learning. How did this happen? How did you, you get know, I, I think in some ways you, you, I mean, I, I believe we all learn best through painful failure. Right. I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think I, I co-founded the investment bank uh, when I, well, you can take it back even farther. I co-founded my, or I founded my first company when I was 30, uh, uh, let's see, 30, 30. And, uh, and, and so um, I think that at that time, having just come out of a very successful, a run as a very successful operating manager in the cable television business, I fancied myself a very capable operating manager. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I'd have to go back and think why I could do it then and don't think I could do it now. Like I, like I don't, I, I'm not sure what's changed except maybe it's this Kevin. Um, I, I, I began to lean into what I thought my, my, uh, gift was, you know, I, I think I was, I, I think I can, um, you know how you, you, you ever look at the things about like the constellations of stars and they say, you know, here's Orion, you know, and it's a hunter and you look at it and you go, that doesn't look anything like a hunter. Right. Like it's, right. you, gotta, you know, they draw the, even when they draw the lines between them, it still doesn't look like a hunter. Um, <laughs> but I think the first guy or the first woman that looked up at that constellation and said, you know, gosh, that's a hunter. Like, I think in the end, like, that's today what I, I think I can do as well as anybody. Like, I can see mm. patterns before or earlier than others can. And I think starting to understand that I could do that and right. that I could uh, analogize and communicate what I was seeing mm -hmm. started to make me less and less willing to go you know, negotiate somebody's hourly uh, wage raise. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, not because one's more or less important than the other, but because uh, I could bring so much more to one. I could bring so much more to the world, I think, yeah. doing one than doing the other. And I think, I guess that's it. It's like, it's that, it's that you know, that, uh, that leaning in to what you do, that putting, you know, putting the wood behind the club when you know you should be swinging it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, it, you know, I think it automatically begins to, 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 to show you what you can't do very well. And, and so you, you go where you go, where the, the return is. So one, one thing that um, you said, as you started that, I, it struck me because I believe the same thing myself. We learn best through painful failure we would literally and i've said this to a number of clients that i've coached over the years i mean the it, failure is by definition painful right we don't like it doesn't feel good but no one is going anywhere without it because that's how you learn that's how you remember now, there are people who have higher risk profiles, right? I mean, some people are risk averse and they can be great managers, but they, they wouldn't be the managers who are going to be entrepreneurial in nature. They'll live within an existing system and they will practice excellence. 
But at some point, those folks tend to get promoted. And before you know it, they're leading people. So your second moment worth a star for me was leaning into my giftedness, leaning into what I know is my special secret sauce. How do you, is there a formula for people to discover that, do you think? Like if somebody's out there listening and we got them hearing two things. One is painful failure is a good thing for learning. And two, you've got to lean into what your gifts are. Um, expand on that. If somebody's listening, going, well, okay, tell me, how, am I, how do I do that? Like, what is that? How, what, okay, tell me, give me some ideas. Give me three things. Or where do I learn? Well, you know, I guess the, you know, the, 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 the failure thing, uh, you know, can also, I, I think, um, can also be defined as stuff that you really, really don't enjoy doing, right? That's a, that's a, if, if I absolutely hate making dinner, the chances that I'm going to be good at making dinner for my, my wife and my kids, you know, go down exponentially. So mm -hmm. I think part of it is just being willing to kind of listen to your, you know, you're related to the voice in your own mind when you just begin to dread some element of your, of your work or your day-to-day -day existence. I mean, it, it, I don't think that there, uh, that, that, that any of us is great at something that we hate. Mm. You know, you can be, you can be, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good at it. Or they keep asking me to do this cause I'm good at it, but I really don't like it. That's a different thing than God. I just, you know, if I have to do, if I have to sort of you know, create one more budget. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, you know, kill myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break these, I'm gonna stick these pens in my ear and, you know, yeah. until I bleed. And so I, I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. But, but I also think, you know, it, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, time in serve, time in grade, like, you know, being around for a long time gives you the luxury of having done stuff and watched yourself screw it up. And, you know, I, I don't, know that I've ever really screwed up something that I just loved. I don't know that I've ever had a situation yeah. where it was like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever experienced or the best, the best job or the best life. And oh, I woke up the next day and I totally screwed it up and it's gone, mm -hmm. right? Like you, you take care when you, generally, I realize that you know, things happen to us and addiction and poor choices and all those things can knock you off the track. But by and large, that thing that you find and you nourish and you nurture, you're doing it because you love it, not out of a sense of duty or obligation. And right. I guess those are the two tracks, Kevin. I guess it's, I guess it's the, you know, listening to yourself on the, on the stuff that, that just grates on you. And, and on the other hand, that thing that, that you find that, you know, I'm willing to do this one more time, even though everyone else is kind of waiting for me to move on or, you know, I, I, I did this wrong, but by God, I want to go and do it right. I mean, those are the things that, those are the things that must be speaking to you at some level. And that's a pretty good path to follow. I love this. I think it's excellent. And, you know, not, not a lot of people will focus on doing something they hate as a teaching moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, if my listeners are, you know, picking this up, you're probably already identifying a, a number of things that you probably have to do or are obligated to do or that go with your job and you just 
absolutely hate it. There's, that's part of your learning right there. There's data about you. It's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. And then the question becomes, what percentage of my time is that stuff? You know, I don't know. I mean, you probably got stuff you got to do that's 2 to 10% of your time, which is not as much fun. Part of what we're both trying to do right now in these times of our careers is give that stuff to other people. But there's occasionally a small percentage of things you just got to do. Okay, so we do them. But once that gets over a certain percentage, it's, that's a message. That's a learning indicator. Yeah, look, there's, think, a, there's a bridging moment that I think exists. Uh, you know, I think there's a moment of terror or a moment of difficulty or a moment of transition in that idea of, well, why don't you just get somebody else to do it? Um, you know, as you know, and I know, and everybody knows, um, there, there's kind of questions of like scale and is there a way and, and structure, right? Like, can I find a way to make my life about this thing? Or can I find a way to make my job more about this and less about that? because I'm really yes. good at this and this is really valuable. And if I did more of this, I could add a lot of other value, but I can't do that until I do the following, grow the Bingo. company, get, find somebody who could, I mean, a lot of times it implies you got to really sort of step on the accelerator to, to get to the point where you could do that. I got to tell you, Kevin, it's, I mean, it's taken us fully seven years to get, Deke to the point where I could kind of sort of say, uh, you know, this thing exists and now I can finally go do the part that is my gift, mm -hmm. my zone of excellence. You know, I just, in fact, I just named my longtime, uh, you know, uh, a compadre and collaborator. Uh, I just stepped down from the chief executive officer's job in uh, December and elevated her to their, excuse me, in, in uh, late October. Uh, and elevated her to the position, and I am seeing a, a, a phenomenal benefit. The company is better. I'm better. We're yep. suddenly accelerating off the top step as well as kind of, you know, repairing the cracks in the bottom one, and, and it is it just reaffirms everything you and I are talking about. You And you referenced the word that you used the term bridge moment. Is that also – the same as, and this is just a different way of phrasing. I just want to make sure it's the same concept about letting go. Is there a letting go? I guess, you know, in this, yes. In the sense that there's a, a I, I think most people would experience it more as a sense of risk. There mm. is a moment of risk in, if you want to call it letting go, right? Like if you're, if, if you think, well, this isn't going to get done right unless I do it. There's yep. a moment of risk in letting somebody else do it. Uh, there's a moment of risk in sort of saying, well, you know, uh, I, I, I know what I could do on the sales side or the capital raising side or the, or the um, whatever side, if only I could carve out some more time and we really don't have enough margin to do that. But I know if I, if I take 90 days, you know, if I take the risk for 90 days, if I, if I'm willing to kind of, you know, own that risk that right. I can get there. It's, there's always something you got to do to get from, from stasis to where you want to be. And that to me is, that's where, you know, that risk reward calculation always comes in. But I, I, I'd love for you, if you can, I don't know if you can, but when you, 
use the term risk, it implies that I have to take a moment and put myself in a condition where I'm at risk. The risk of what? Well, it kind of goes back in a nicely circular and self-sustaining way to what we were talking about before. It's the risk of failure of some kind. You yeah. know, what, 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 I mean, look, I, 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 there, there, I, I think, you know, probably all of us, but especially if you are a words person as I am, you end up with these certain phrases that stick to you that you realize are profound lessons in your life. And, and here's one that I, here's a very short, profound one that I think I've learned. Uh, people in business almost always systematically overestimate risk. So, so, so there's that notion that like, well, being an entrepreneur is risky, you know, compared to what, like, what does risk mean? Is there a risk you're going to die because you're an entrepreneur? You know, is there a risk you're going to catch some kind of horrible disease if you try to start a company? Like, what are you, are you risking your, your family's not going to love you anymore? Your dog's going to bite you? Like it's, you know, the, the, what risk is, is, is uh, I think people, I, I think it's, it's uh, too big of a piece of our psyche. And so, say it, wait, stop right there. You, I think you just said it. The big piece is identity. Psyche, identity. Yep. yep. And entrepreneurs in particular. Now, you and I have met plenty of people in our YPO world. There are guys whose public company, professional hired gun status is as much their identity as the creative architect or technology guy who invented something, right? But we, be, we end up becoming what we do. And the risk is, who will I be if not that? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's absolutely right. By the way, I mean, it does actually ratchet up, you know, the, the risk. If, if I were to describe the risk right now to, to where I am in my world and in my life, um, it, you, you nailed it right on the head. It, it would be a risk. It'd be a psychological risk uh, right. because um, when you, if you end up as I have been lucky enough to following this track of life and success and then getting to a point where you said I am doing now I am doing my life's work now I am doing this is what I was put here to do yep which is that's where I sit right now so so imagine now if I go out and uh screw it up you know that then that you know if you tell if you tell your friends I'm doing what I was born to do and then you F it up, then you really, you know, you were really, that's a risk, I guess. <laughs> that, you know, that's you, an identity crisis. Okay. Um, so, so I, I, I would like to take your statement and tag along. Yes, people systematically overestimate risk in the traditional things that people do when they do risk analysis in business. It's usually around the money. It's a usually yeah. about the return. It's usually about the investors and what they expect. And you know how all that works. But what people in entrepreneurial worlds are always faced with is the true risk of letting go in order to scale is your identity. Yep. And you just nailed it. I, the culmination of my life, I'm feeling I'm in it. 
I have leaned into my giftedness. I have let go the reins. I've gotten deep to a space after seven years where I can actually put somebody else with the role of CEO and I can do my flow. It flows out of me. I have finally arrived at a place to let that all fly into the universe, as you so aptly put on LinkedIn. And with that, now the risk of failure is in a different scale. So I think people will underestimate the risks, the real risk of letting go and scaling something so they can put themselves in a position to lean into the gifts that we've described. I, I think that's probably right. You know, although I have to say, like, you know, I mean, I, I believe that in some ways I've taken way too long to get our company to this point. I think there were some, we did some remarkably difficult things. If you, you know, if you, if you go to our website and see, we have this, what we call the content wall, which is just all of the national media content we've done. The, these thousand plus pieces of national media content, nothing else like it has ever existed. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and could it have been done faster? I, I always feel like it could, but I can tell you this, like we, we, what, what, what really, really knowing something and knowing yourself does is it gives you the confidence to do that lean in. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I think Kevin and I, and I think you've probably encountered a lot of them too. I, I have to say, I see a lot of entrepreneurial stuff and startups and, and stuff where there's, you know, you don't really walk away thinking, God, this, this man or this woman knows this thing backwards and forwards and they've thought it through and they are, you know, and they've identified the, the risks or the things that could go wrong and they, they know they're making a calculation. When you see something as a venture capitalist or an investor or a prospective employee or a, you know, somebody wants you to join their board and you look at it and you go, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot, right? Like there's right. a lot of like half-baked yep. stuff where I'm going to make this financial engineering decision and you look at it and you just don't believe in it. Like there's yep. a difference to, to kind of soaking in the thing you're doing, really knowing it and then being ready to move, right? That's how you get the, the mm-hmm. faith and the confidence and, to, you know, to, to, to really, really mash that, you know, that accelerator pedal down, that Thelma and Louise moment of mm-hmm. I'm going over the cliff and I, and I believe <laughs> the outcome is going to be right. That is perfectly stated. This has been fantastic. Um, I'll tell you what I want to do. I, I, I want to, as I, I'm doing the same thing in my own small way here with the podcast, you know, um, people who are listening to the first time, when I started this, it was the culmination of a dream of having a one-man show that started in 2010. I was going to be like the Hal Holbrook doing the Mark Twain thing. And my wife, my wife looked at me, she goes, you know, I can't think of anything more labor intensive, difficult and troublesome than to putting on a stage performance for, you know, what, a hundred people, you got to do a podcast. And I just just slapped myself on the side of the head and said, yeah, you're right. So off we go. And now this direction 
to me, especially as the first time spending a time interview, you are, you are a gift and have been a gift. Um, I don't believe in coincidences. And when you and I were talking for, I don't know, off something totally different. Um, and I subsequently came up with the idea to do the interview piece. You immediately came to my mind and I can see why no coincidence, God thing. Um, so you, have laid down a couple of moments of sheer clarity that I want to leave with the listeners. And then I'm going to leave you with a, a question that I want you to answer for everybody. And it will be your, your thought provoking question. One is uh, sheer clarity. You got to learn through painful failure. And if you're afraid of that, your learning curve is going to be really stunted. So you must go and try and fail. Second thing was if you know what you hate to do, you you can already begin to say, well, my best efforts are not going to occur in that zone. And whatever you're doing, if you really hate it, then you've got to find a place that you don't hate. Because nothing good will come out of you if you're hating it. There might be small pieces every now and again that go with the territory. But if you want to lean into your giftedness, you're going to have to be prepared to fail. And you're going to have to also discard the things that you can't just stand doing. And then lastly, I think people may systematically overestimate and overanalyze any new venture, new idea, or even a big decision in your life. What you have to make sure is distinguished between collateral damage, economic damage, and the kind that's about your identity. Whenever your identity is at stake, those stakes are really high and people actually don't even have a self-awareness to even estimate them. They make other reasons why they're not doing something when in fact the reason is their identity is at risk. Who will you be, especially if you fail? So thank you for all of this, Dave. Here's my question for you. And I'm going to try this with everybody. So you're the first one who will not have the benefit of having prepared. Others will. So you're today standing at this point in your life. I want to imagine turning around and looking back and seeing at the path that Dave Maney traveled, what advice would you give to yourself back when you were 23 or 24, 25? Knowing what you know now, just looking all the way down and you see yourself a 23, 24, 25 year old young David, what advice would you give to him right now? You know, it's funny. It's funny. We were just talking about that other stuff because um, uh, as we get, we're beginning to ask it, I was thinking, you know, uh, that I would have, I, I would have given almost the advice we just talked through. I mean, I think, I think if I had leaned harder sooner into what I was, uh, the, the stuff that I'm really, really good at, Kevin, the, the mm-hmm. particularly the, the, the communication stuff and the, and the, 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 the fact synthesis or the dot connecting or the, the, the kind of the over the horizon implication. I, I was, I was good at that when I was 25 mm. and I don't, and I think the, 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 the pathways, but I, I didn't have the confidence to, to follow those pathways strongly enough. So mm. I, I think in some ways I could, I, 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 I'm, I'm delighted to be at the point that I'm at, heading the direction that I'm heading. Uh, 
but I think there would have been a set of alternative real or alternate realities that could have also been followed uh, and and that would have happened sooner if I had not been uh, if I had not spent too much time doing things I wasn't really all that good at. Mm. So I just go back and replay the, 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 the three big points you just came up with about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about leaning into your world and, and, and not overestimating risk and, and being willing to kind of put yourself out there and, and, and just ask myself to do it sooner. Excellent. Well, thanks. I want to say thanks. Dave, if uh, folks want to check out Deke Digital, what's the website they should have? Uh, it's Deke Digital. Deke is a D-E-K-E. That's my son's name, DekeDigital.com. Uh, and um, a great place to start is the page that's called Content, where you can see uh, all of the things that our experts are, are doing okay. and creating for the, for the national media. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening today to Sheer Clarity. And thanks to Dave Maney for just an amazing way, way beyond my expectations and uh, a true gift. Uh, I want you to tune in next week. We're going to have Toby Levine. He is the CEO of Clean Mark Labels. They provide custom label and printing solutions in clean rooms. But he also has another title. He is also the chairman of Hunting for Purpose. Uh, He says he's gone to the University of Hard Knocks. Then Toby has an experienced life with everything from being a serial entrepreneur to a uh, hired gun. He's hired, he's fired, he's failed, he's won, he's lost, and um, he's going to be a tremendous guest. So tune in. Uh, You can see the show notes on sheerclarity.com, and I'll also make a link in there to Deep Digital. I thank you again, Dave Maney, and we'll see you next time on Sheer Clarity.